Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, October the 8th, uh, 2022. Uh, We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the continuing war between the Russian Federation and the United States-supported Ukrainian forces. Peace talks between the Ethiopian government and the TPLF rebels in Pretoria, South Africa, have been postponed. Nigerian President uh, Mohamedou Buhari has submitted a national budget, which is the largest of his tenure in office. And uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK, have conducted additional missile launches, which have landed in the Sea of Japan. In the second hour, we look at the recently held national elections in the Kingdom of Lesotho, where the recently formed Revolution Prosperity Party uh, has scored an overwhelming victory. Later, we look at the national and uh, the nature and character of education on the African continent. Finally, we review some aspects of the resistance history of the African-American people. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude. And, of course, we'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. I'm 
babangaye Batomabe babangaye Awa biso peuple Utumo ito sambe la ponaye
Mazatu nakopeta Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, October the 8th, uh, 2022, and we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines uh, in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, signed a decree on enhancing security measures for the Crimea Bridge, as well as for the energy bridge and the gas pipeline connecting the peninsula with mainland Russia. The Kremlin said in a statement that earlier today, the Federal Security Service of the Russian Federation shall be vested with the authority to organize and coordinate protection measures for the Kerch Strait transport crossing. The power grid's uh, energy bridge between the Russian Federation and the Crimea Peninsula, along with the main gas pipeline between Krasnodar uh, region and Crimea uh, during their operation, the document said. According to the decree, uh, this is done to enhance the efficiency of protection measures uh, for the transport crossing, the energy bridge, and the gas pipeline across the Kerch Strait. The Russian government is commissioned to update their executive orders in accordance uh, with the decree, uh, which entered into force on the day it was signed. On Saturday morning, a truck exploded on the Crimea Bridge, setting fuel tanks of a passerby freight train ablaze. Three people were killed, and two sections of the bridge road part collapsed. The part of the bridge connecting Crimea with the Krasnodar region was not reportedly damaged. The traffic on the bridge uh, was completely stopped, but after 4 p.m. Moscow time, uh, it uh, was partly reopened for buses and automobiles. The first test run on the rails came off successfully. A government commission chaired by Russian Deputy Prime Minister Marat uh, Kusnulin uh, was set up after the incident. Now, according uh, to uh, Marat uh, Kusnulin, an additional passenger train will be provided as needed. Traffic on the rail part of the Crimea Bridge uh, has been completely restored, and additional passenger trains will be provided if needed. Russian Deputy Prime Minister Marat Kusnalin uh, told reporters earlier today, as for the railroad, I can say that traffic has been fully restored. Uh, we will allow all these scheduled trains, both freight and passenger ones, to pass through. We have all technical capabilities to do so if needed. We will provide extra trains to carry passengers he said. In other news uh, from uh, the Ukrainian war front, Russia's aircraft, missiles, and artillery units hit over 220 targets of the Ukrainian armed forces in the past 24 hours. That's according to Russian Defense Ministry spokesman, Lieutenant General Igor Konashevkov. Uh, he said that uh, to journalists earlier today. Tactical and Army uh, aircraft, uh, as well as missile and artillery troops, hit the firing positions of 54 artillery units, as well as troops and military equipment 
in 174 areas he specified. According to Kazna Sherkov, uh, four ammunition depots were destroyed near the uh, Grigorovka settlement in the Donetsk People's Republic, Uzbenovka uh, in the Zaborista region, uh, Novaya, uh, Kamenka in the Kurdistan region, and the city of Nikolaya. A Ukrainian military communications center was destroyed in the Kharkov region. According uh, to the Russian Defense Ministry spokesman Igor Konashemkov, the Russian armed forces have successfully repelled all of the Ukrainian attacks. Ukraine's armed forces have lost more than 100 troops in an attempt to advance to the Kupiansk direction. Defense Ministry spokesman Lieutenant General Igor Konashemkov reported earlier today. In the Kupinskansk direction, uh, the enemy's two reinforced battalions attempted an offensive towards uh, Persia Shravnovye and uh, Yogo Nyonye in the Kharkov region, uh, Konashevkov said. According to the Russian Defense Ministry spokesman, uh, Russian armed forces have successfully repelled all the Ukrainian attacks. More than 100 Ukrainian servicemen, uh, two tanks, five infantry fighting vehicles, and two cars were taken out, he said, adding that as a result of the massive strikes on the advancing enemy reserves near Petropavlovka, uh, Kharkov region, uh, more than 120 troops, 110 troops of the Ukrainian Armed Forces 14th Mechanized Brigade and the 19th Battalion of the Territorial Defense had been eliminated. According uh, to the Russian Defense Ministry, a total of 316 aircraft, 158 helicopters, 2,176 unmanned aerial vehicles, 379 surface-to-air missile systems, 5,494 tanks, and other armored combat vehicles, 866 multiple rocket launcher combat vehicles, 3,457 field artillery guns and mortars, and 6,395 special military vehicles have been destroyed since the special military operation was launched. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shogui uh, appointed uh, Army General Sergei to command the joint group of forces involved in a special military operation in Ukraine, Defense Ministry Spokesman Lieutenant General Igor Konashevkov told reporters earlier today. Army General Sergei Sharovkin has been appointed to command the joint group of forces in the area of the special military operation in Ukraine based on the Russian Defense Minister's decision, he said. Sharovkin uh, earlier served as commander of Russia's eastern military district and led the Russian troops in Syria. In the Horn of Africa, African Union sponsored peace talks to resolve Ethiopia's two-year-long Tigray conflict will not take place as planned this weekend because of logistics and other issues, uh, diplomatic sources told the international press on Friday. A further sign of the challenges in bringing the deeply suspicious foreign sides to the table. Ethiopia's uh, federal government, uh, just this last past Wednesday, accepted an invitation from the chair of the African Union Commission to attend the talks in South Africa, which would be the most significant meeting yet between the combatants. The Gray authorities uh, said they were ready to send negotiators but saw clarity on the structure of the talks. Having previously insisted on the participation of international officials as observers, the Tigray authorities also sought security assurances for their travel. Diplomatic sources sought on the condition of anonymity because they weren't authorized to discuss the matter publicly, 
said logistical issues were partly to blame for the delay. They said the format of the talks had been agreed upon. No new date has been set. The African Union has said the talks are due to be led by AU Special Envoy Olusegun Abasanjo, supported by the former Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta and Pumzili Mlamo Nguka, a former uh, Deputy President of the Republic of South Africa. But a letter from Kenyatta, uh, seen by the Associated Press, said he would not attend this weekend due to conflicts in his schedule. And he asked for further clarity in the structure and modality of the talks, including the rules of engagement for all speakers invited. This clarification would greatly help in preparation for my engagement and participation. He called for the immediate and unconditional cessation of hostility. And that was according to former president of the Republic of Kenya, Uhuru Kenyatta. Now, South African government has not spoken publicly about the talks nor responded to questions. The conflict between the Tigray forces and Ethiopia's federal government renewed in late August, ending a lull in fighting in, in place uh, since March uh, that had allowed thousands of truckloads of aid to enter the Tigray region, where more than 5 million people need humanitarian assistance. Once again, uh, aid deliveries have reportedly stopped. Uh, forces from neighboring Eritrea are again deeply involved uh, in the struggle on the side of the Ethiopian forces, according to witnesses in recent satellite imagery. Millions of people in northern Tigray, including the neighboring regions of Amhar and Afar, have been uprooted from their homes. <clears throat> Tens of thousands of people, I believe, to have been killed uh, since the conflict broke out uh, nearly two years ago in November of 2020. Babies in Tigray are, have higher mortality rates. Uh, than in other parts of the country. That was according uh, to a report by the Associated Press earlier this week. Uh, they cited a yet unpublished study shared by its authors. They also uh, indicated that women are dying during pregnancy or within 42 days of giving birth at five times the rate uh, prior uh, to the war. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Nigerian President Mohamedou Buhari is launching an ambitious plan to grow the West African nation's economy and end its security woes with the record government expenditure during the next fiscal year. The record of 20.5 trillion naira, uh, that's 47.3 billion U.S. dollars, proposed expenditure reflects the serious challenges faced by Nigeria and contains key reforms necessary to address them. Buhari told lawmakers when presenting the budget in the capital city of Abuja yesterday. The budget expected uh, to be approved and take effect in January of 2023 is 19% higher than his year's government uh, expenditure and is also uh, Nigeria's highest ever prioritizing fiscal sustainability, economic growth, and security. As Nigeria still battles extremism in its northeast and armed attacks, in the northwest and central regions, resulting in the loss of thousands of lives in the last year, Buhari allocated the most funds to defense and internal security. At least 5.3 trillion naira, that's some 12.2 billion U.S. dollars, or 26% of the proposed budget, is to go into capital expenditure and an ambitious plan that the nation's government is banking on to build key infrastructure and create jobs in Africa's largest economy, where many years of bad governance and corruption have stifled genuine development. The 2023 budget was prepared amidst a very challenging world economy. 
that is weakened by the lingering effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, high inflation, high crude oil prices resulting in the huge cost of a gasoline subsidy, and negative spillover effects of the Russian-Ukraine war, said Buhari, who is to leave office as president next year after general elections are held in February. With projected economic growth of 3.7% and 16.87 trillion naira, that's 38.9 billion U.S. dollars, and expected federal government revenue in uh, 2023, Buhari said Nigeria is aiming to achieve higher, more inclusive, diversified, and sustainable growth with the proposed budget. External borrowing uh, to the tune of 8.8 trillion naira, that's 20.3 billion U.S. dollars, would fund the budget deficit, Buhari said, amid concerns over the country's high public debt of 41 trillion naira, some 96.7 billion. As of March, the country has also missed out on rising oil prices with limited crude production blamed on oil theft. I assure you, insecurity, especially banditry and kidnapping, will be significantly curtailed before the end of this administration. We will redouble our efforts to ensure we, we leave a legacy of peaceful, prosperous, and security nation. He said, adding that the significant challenges Nigeria faces would have been much worse if not the government had not intervened. And finally, uh, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea has purportedly launched a ballistic missile into the Sea of Japan in the early hours uh, uh, of uh, Sunday, uh, according to uh, Japanese time. That's according to the Japanese Coast Guard. The um, NHK television channel said that the missile has fallen beyond Japan's exclusive economic zone in the Sea of Japan. The Japan Coast Guard has called on the ships in the area to contact the authorities immediately after spotting any missile debris, but to avoid approaching it. And of course, uh, this situation uh, has uh, attracted uh, the attention of uh, people inside the United States. Another report uh, from the Associated Press that says that North Korea has fired two short-range ballistic missiles towards its eastern waters on Sunday, uh, the latest uh, in a barrage of weapons tests in recent days after the North uh, warned against the U.S. redeployment of an aircraft carrier for a new round of drills with the South Korean warships. South Korea's Joint Chief of Staff said in a statement it detected the two missiles launched between 1.48 a.m. and 1.58 a.m. on Sunday, uh, Japanese time, from north uh, east, eastern coastal city of Munshon. It says South Korea's military had boosted its surveillance posture, boosted its surveillance posture and maintains a readiness in close coordination with the United States. The Japanese government also said North Korea fired what was possible ballistic missiles. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida instructed officials to do their utmost to gather and analyze information about the suspected launches and inform the public of any accurate information quickly while ensuring the safety of aircraft and ships around Japan and preparing for any contingencies, according to the office. The Japanese Coast Guard said it has warned ships around the country's coast about failing objects and urged them to stay away. He launched the North's seventh round of weapons tests in two weeks, came hours after the United States and South Korea wrapped a new round of naval drills off the Korean Peninsula's east coast. 
the drills involve the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan and its battle group, uh, which returned to the area after North Korea fired a powerful missile over Japan last week to protest the carrier group's previous training in South Korea. On Saturday, North Korea's defense ministry warned that the region's redeployment uh, was causing a considerable huge negative splash in regional security. The North's defense ministry said it called its recent missile test a righteous reaction to intimidating military drills between its rivals. <clears throat> North Korea regards the U.S. and South Korean military exercises as an invasion rehearsal and is especially sensitive to such drills involve U.S. strategic interests, U.S. strategic assets, uh, like an aircraft carrier. North Korea has argued it was forced to pursue a nuclear weapons program to cope with the U.S. nuclear threats. U.S. and South Korean officials have repeatedly said they have no intentions of attacking the North. North Korea's latest launches added uh, to its uh, record-breaking pace of weapons tests this year. The recent weapons tests included a nuclear-capable missile that flew over Japan for the first time in five years and demonstrated a range of strikes the U.S. Pacific Territory, Guam, and beyond. Earlier this year, North Korea tests other nuclear-capable ballistic missiles that placed the United States mainland and its allies, South Korea and Japan, within striking distance. North Korea's testing spree indicates its leader, Kim Jong-un, has no intentions of resuming diplomacy with the United States and wants to focus on expanding his weapons arsenal. But some experts say Kim would eventually aim to use his advanced nuclear program to wrest greater outside concessions, such as the recognition of North Korea as a legitimate nuclear state, which Kim thinks is essential in getting crippling UN sanctions on his country lifted. South Korea officials recently said North Korea was also prepared to test a new liquid-fired and fueled uh, intercontinental ballistic missile and a submarine-launched ballistic missile while maintaining readiness to perform its first underground nuclear test since 2017. And with that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to uh, have access to this program, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, October the 8th, uh, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. And that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, these programs can be shared with other potential listeners, and of course they can be shared through email by posting the links to other blogs and websites 
as well as through social media networks uh, such as uh, Facebook and Twitter. And uh, this is uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal. I will be back with more of our program for this week. Hear us. Through our voice, the world knows there's 
Welcome back. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. That was the music of Curtis Mayfield uh, with the track entitled, We Gotta Have Peace. And uh, we're here on Saturday, uh, October the 8th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we want to move into our coverage of the uh, elections in the Southern African state of the Kingdom of Lesotho. And uh, they uh, underwent elections yesterday. Results have already uh, been uh, tabulated and announced. Uh, Let's listen to some reports uh, on the situation in Lesotho. Lesotho's Electoral Commission has officially uh, declared the Mandabiseng Convention Center as the official national results publishing center. Whilst the commission has acknowledged that some discontent surrounding the transparency of the election results, the commission is confident that it will deliver credible elections. Basuta, head to the polls tomorrow. On this coming Friday, the Kingdom of Lesotho will head to the polls. This venue, the Mount Havison Convention Center, has been transformed into National Results Publishing Center. While IEC is adamant that it's all systems go, there are concerns regarding the voters' role, but IEC is adamant that all is in order. We are therefore proud that what we have at hand is an acceptable product to bring about convictional election result publication. As Taylor Swift said, it is not enough to just want change. You have to go and make change happen today by voting. For some of the new entrants in the game, all they want is to make that change their seniors have been battling with. I'm 95% there. I'm quite happy that uh, whatever they will be delivering um, this coming few days will be a true reflection of what uh, Basotho um, represents. As the younger nations, we have to make sure that we do what Basotho needs, what our generation, our younger generation needs. Lesotho has a total of 80 constituencies, where 2,560 candidates from around 65 political parties will contest. There is, however, one failed election due to the death of one contestant. The first batch of results will trickle in by Saturday afternoon. Lapelang Hatebe, SABC News, Maserolo well, let's speak now to our correspondent in Lesotho, Rabelang Khadebe, uh, on the eve of those big elections. Uh, Rabelang, I suppose everybody is now uh, excited and anticipating a new uh, uh, period in Lesotho's political life? Absolutely, it is going to be one of the turning points, the era that Bosotho gets to make that mark that can make or break, depending on how they do their decision. But Bosotho does decide as tomorrow, and everybody is looking forward to it. Is everything set and ready? Yo, I wish I could answer that in one straight sentence. IEC has been mad with complaints that 
they were insufficiently funded and had to make lots of compromises, lots of sacrifices here and there. But yesterday, when the director of elections made a statement, he was adamant that despite those challenges, they still believe that they have a credible product to offer. Uh, Soto will get credible elections, and he was confident. So we will have to take his word on it. There have been politicians that raised that they were not happy with the polling uh, voters' poll. They were still seeing inconsistencies. Uh, some Soto were saying they had received the MSS, SMSs that confirmed that they had changed, somebody was working in a particular place and wanted to go now and vote in a different place because of uh, life-changing circumstances. Uh, but when they get there, they could not find their names in the registers for. So there had been some of those uh, complaints that had come true, but one would not think there would be so material that they could affect uh, the outcome of the election. Are you expecting a good turnout? Are Basutu interested in voting? Yeah, we have seen a steady decline in the past two polling, but one would say, looking at this previous rally, I think the presence of the new players brought a little bit of a flavor, very young orientated, and these are the young people who, who will be for the first time uh, voting. Uh, we hope they sort of ignited that spark that would lead them to the polls. But at the same time, we have seen the big parties, your Democratic Congress, really robustly going out at all costs, even introducing um, very, I don't call fashionable trends, you know, they've introduced the sort of beauty pageants into trying and attracting the youth into their parties. The others going very big in music and making sure that uh, the road trips, it, it becomes something that the youth would want to associate with, especially when you come to the urban uh, urban regions because a lot of them can be quite unstable. Uh, they can promise you that they will vote and when that day comes, a lot of them simply just get onto their cars, drive off to Bloomfontein for shopping. Um, but we would want to believe that there has been enough messages that try to reach out to them to make sure that that registration is now transformed into a vote that can actually mean something for their parties. So we hope for a reasonable turnout, um, but there has been a steady decline when it comes to voter apathy. Have the election observers said anything so far, or have they been mum and uh, just making notes? Yeah, a lot of them have avoided being vocal. Uh, some had released some pre-written text uh, on basic analysis looking at uh, the climate, the mood before the election. And I think of all that we have tried to squeeze a word out of them, they maintain that 
one thing that is in common with these elections is that the mood, there is peace, there is tolerance. Uh, it is Basotho, as you know that. But we also know that usually in Lesotho, the problems will always erupt after the elections. The post-elections is what troubles. That has been the trend over the years. So could we say the come before the storm? We would want to believe that this atmosphere will say, I think people will be tolerant, be mature enough to accept uh, the outcome of the elections. If not, at least follow the right measures which challenge them in court if needs be. But it will, it's commendable that we have seen the military staying in the barracks. We have seen the police really acting with restraint. Um, if anything, protecting those who want to exercise their vote. So we really, based on that prediction, uh, want to say, I think based on the mood that is prevailing, that is existing, we can anticipate a relatively peaceful, credible and fair election. All right. So take us through the day tomorrow, opening time, closing time, and when do we start to see results coming through? Indeed, 7 o'clock has been proposed as the time that uh, all polling stations will open. We will be interested, I think, as journalists to follow certain polling centers just to see the smoothness of how things are transpiring. We would like to see some of the leaders uh, that are accessible, to see them cast their ballots. Um, some will be going right into the mountains where some of the leaders are, but we would want to capture as much as possible the mood to have that kind of knowledge uh, such that we have a better feel. According to the director of elections, he has anticipated that it's only Saturday afternoon, you know, because some of the polling stations are pretty far and you depend on the helicopters to go and collect the actual ballot. Uh, but the anticipation is that late Saturday afternoon we shall start seeing a trickling of some of those results coming through to the, uh, to the centre. All right, so the 11th Amendment to the Constitution. Uh, Parliament failed to pass this uh, piece of legislation. We had a state of emergency declared. We've got the Constitutional Court making a decision on that issue uh, not so long ago. Where does this all fit into this election process? Or have they parked all of this and whoever comes in is going to have to pick it up and sort it out? after the election? <laughs> it's all gone. <laughs> None of that stands anymore. Uh, I think you'll go back to our conversations of Dunberg when I said I foresee a lot of interesting drama falling out. Well, the good thing is it looks like there is mood to try and resuscitate those omnibus bills. But there has also been quarters that said they were rushed, they were hurried, they did not really paint a true picture of what um, Basutu had said initially with that reforms. There might be a lot of challenges to make sure that what is passed as the omnibus bill is a true reflection of what the desires or the, um, the aspirations of Basutu were reflected in that omnibus bill. So it, I don't see it being as quick as they are promising us, 
because now remember issues like your media law some parliamentary had been whittled down watered down and this will meet stiff challenges when they go back to the committees of people wanting to now look at them thoroughly not in such a rush because they are reaching some sort of a deadline but to answer your question simply yeah none of those will see the light of data is affected even the, the the national elections because a lot of what people had thought would transpire went out of the window so that means whatever was in that bill can only really affect the next parliament which is the 12th parliament not this upcoming 11th parliament and there were some key issues there things like fork floor crossing the role of the prime minister and so the new government is safe, I guess, and uh, old rules still apply. Yeah? I, I, I doubt. Uh, safe <laughs> to some extent because, look, a, a lot of the advantages that they were looking at because they can now, through the window, throw people that they desire. Do you know when we have what we call the, the PR list, which had been notorious of the, the political leaders putting people who have not really been favored by their constituencies, but it is more of an executive decision of how they want. That was not going to be the case. But now it's a safe uh, passage for them to actually exercise that. But I think a more interesting or a more serious one is that um, we know for sure the sort of will go through a coalition. Now, the challenge is how long that coalition can hold. Because if somebody feels like they have not been given uh, what they wanted, they can easily decide and say, look, I'm crossing floor. I will join people who sort of represent or tries to understand. We have seen how unstable those coalitions are. And I would want to say the next six months will be quite crucial and important as to whether who gets to be the government, can they retain their position in government? Uh, at least the safe passage is that we are sure that this parliament will complete its course because the law that allowed the prime minister to unilaterally call for snap elections has been scrapped. So that passage has been closed. Uh, that door is no longer available. So whatever they do, it will be the battle between them as the legislators, but it will not affect the masses of seeing a situation where they go to elections two to three times in one time of the five years. Ravelang, get some rest. I've got a feeling you've got a really long day ahead of you tomorrow. <laughs> Can't wait, but very excited also. <laughs> Thank you. All right, that's our correspondent in Maseru. Rapelang uh, Khadebe, who is uh, going to be capturing all of uh, the events tomorrow as Basutu go out in their numbers, one hopes, uh, in uh, elections tomorrow. And uh, you can watch all of that unfold right here on the channel. Uh, that was uh, the SABC uh, Lesotho correspondent, uh, Rapilon Hadebe, and uh, he is, uh, of course, uh, doing a follow-up in this next report uh, as the election process unfolded uh, in the Kingdom of Lesotho on yesterday, and 
We have, of course, been observing uh, through the Pan-African Newswire uh, developments in Lesotho surrounding this election. Let's listen to an additional report uh, from Rapilong Hatebe. Lesotho's parliamentary elections kicked off this week and questions abound about prospects for the country to move forward with a new prime minister and political stability. The polls have now closed and results are expected next week. Let's go to SABC News reporter Rapilang Radebe Khadebe for the latest. Rapilang, good evening to you and thank you for joining us. So much hope is wrapped up in these polls for a new future with Lesotho. Share with our viewers what the challenges are. Absolutely. I think uh, for the first time, I think the smooth elections, very peaceful, more of issues for Basutu to discuss and debate, and I think this is what has influenced their vote. Let me just correct that IEC was a lot faster than we thought. Uh, they are almost around 30% in announcing the results, and we are seeing a rather new change we are seeing a new shift with the new party coming into place that is already beginning to take its shape, especially with the urban voters. When then are our results expected? The results are already trickling out. Uh, actually, what we are just, I think, waiting for, it is an official announcement, which is likely going to happen, if not tomorrow, latest will be on Monday because the IEC director said he is willing to keep on announcing even right into the night. So they are moving at an incredible pace, uh, which says your normal seven days, which is the official time to declare the final winner, might be better. Uh, we hope it will be a lot sooner than one would expect. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of, you know, those who voted are looking forward to that result expectantly. How important are these elections in terms of uh, a new leader serving a full term, given that previous PMs over the last decade have not been able to do that? Super important. I think it is one of those, the watershed moment, the turning point for most of the Lesotho has been plagued by internal violence, uh, three governments, three uh, elections in, in a period of five years, two army generals killed by their own subordinates. It has been robbed, Sadak having to intervene all the time. But I think these are some of the issues that were so too decided that they need some sort of stability. And the group men really came together and said they want to set a mandate, they want to take the vision. If things go according to the prediction, it looks like, I'm not predicting elections, but it looks like by the look of things, if you look at the margins, there's a possibility of a one-party leading not having to go to coalition. You know, uh, Rapilang, one of the important markers uh, about a future or even the success of, of elections, of course, is the actual tangible results, what happens empirically. And the other really is the mood of a nation, the mood of a people. And in your reporting, how would you sum that mood up? Very, very vibrant. You see people discussing issues. You see rough, robust engagement on social media. Uh, I think what was very unique in, and outstanding in one, what, what one was observing is the type of calmness, peace, there were times where you could really feel the tension in previous elections. I've been following the city elections as early as 1996, I think. Um, and you, there would be that 
visible tension when you see an opponent of another party even crossing paths. But this time, I think people were very mature discussing issues. You could wear your own T-shirt and without any fear of intimidation. But I think most likely was that the security cluster, the military, the police were in their own lane, making sure that people are safe, people the polling stations are secure and no intimidation whatsoever. That had been the case in the previous past elections. So I think that mood was also observed even by Sadak and other foreign observer missions. The first thing that they said it was, it is how peaceful and how calm people and relaxed. There is, has not been any claim of anyone citing intimidation. So I think that sets the tone for the elections that will likely be declared as free and fair. Thank you very much for that comprehensive wrap. We appreciate you. Uh, SABC News reporter Rapelang Khadebe just bringing us the latest on the elections in Lesotho. This is uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast and uh, we're listening uh, to correspondents' uh, reports uh, on the recently held uh, national elections in the Kingdom of Lesotho in Southern Africa. And uh, we're going to hear another uh, report, uh, which is an analysis uh, by Dr. Klohong Vetsia, uh, who is a professor at the National University of Lesotho, uh, speaking about the aftermath of the elections. We're talking about the outcomes of the elections, the parliamentary elections in uh, Lesotho, and we pick up that conversation now. To understand the deeper themes at play, we are joined by National University of Lesotho senior lecturer, Dr. Tlohang Letsia. Good evening to you, uh, Dr. Letsia, and welcome. Take us a step back. What are some of the major fault lines in Lesotho politics that have historically been fueling the political instability? Oh, thank you very much, and uh, welcome to your uh, viewers. Uh, I think up to this point, we can say that the elections have gone fairly well uh, with a lot of stability that we saw yesterday. So we are not expecting, at least at this point in time, uh, not any instability. There are no signs as yet. What are the historical instabilities and fault lines in politics there? <laughs> uh, normally, uh, we have had political instability emanating mostly after the announcement of the election results. Uh, during the initial phases, we, we really never had any problems. And you'll find that in most cases, the instability emanates from the dissatisfaction of people who might have not been able to make it to parliament, not necessarily because of any uh, significant uh, complaints and so on and so forth. So until this time, like I said earlier, we are not expecting to see any theme much. But the constitutional backdrop gives us a hint of some of those inherent uh, problems because there was a raft of reforms proposed and passed before the elections called the Omnibus Constitutional Bill, and that was intended to usher in a new era of stability. And before we talk about whether they will ever see the light of day, tell us more about what they are aiming to achieve. Uh, mostly the, the omnibus bill that you are talking about was the result of the national reforms process that was initiated some years back uh, by Lesotho and its uh, foreign developmental partners. So it is aimed mostly to hold all this sort of instability that uh, have kept Lesotho unstable for a number of times. But 
talking to uh, elections related issues specifically there were a number of issues that it were aimed at uh, dealing with uh, for instance if i make just a few examples it was meant to try to regulate floor crossing we have had a lot of problems resulting from uh, floor crossing in the suit so it was uh, meant to try to regulate that such that uh, mps would only be allowed to cross the floor once uh, after three years. Apart from that, it was meant to uh, come up with a threshold uh, for attainment of parliamentary seats, PRCs, because we have seen in most cases you'll find these smaller parties that benefit from the compensatory element of our model coming into parliament, and they are the, the parties that most of the time are causing problems because their members can cross over uh, to other parties. So there were, there were quite a number of uh, such uh, problems that it was meant to address. However, it failed to pass, like we've already said about it, but we are still hopeful that uh, the coming 11th Parliament might want to revisit that and then uh, enact such laws. And, and that was going to be my, my next question, because as you just said now, there was a decision of the High Court there that a previously declared state of emergency and uh, reconvening of parliament uh, null, null and void. It was declared null and void. So all the laws passed by this uh, recalled parliament are also now declared null and void. And so the prospects for the omnibus constitutional bill to be passed, I suppose, hangs in the air. But given that that is the backdrop, there seems to be a sincere pledge to honor the results of the polls. Do you believe, Dr. Letier, that there is and that Lesotho might be on the cusp of a changed and stable future? Yeah, I'm not sure whether you are following the latest developments now, because uh, starting from, I think, around uh, 12 o'clock this afternoon, we began to see the announcement of the election results. I have to say we are having a shock result. Shock results in the, uh, in the sense that uh, almost everybody had predicted a coalition government. But now, as things are, the newly established uh, Revolution for Prosperity, RFP, by, uh, under the leadership of Matikani, seems to be sweeping almost everything. Until the point when I came to this interview, there were, I think, about uh, 11 con uh, constituencies that were already announced and it had won all of them. And the chances are that it's going to win more. So I think that brings an element of hope because most of the people that are coming in into parliament with uh, RST are new members altogether. So uh, we, we are hopeful that they will want to consider and try to correct the wrongs of the past parliament. We were somehow worried that uh, most of those people who were in the previous parliament would come back. These are the people who did not seem to care much about the reforms. But now we are somehow hopeful that uh, they might want to revisit that as soon as the parliament opens and then pass the laws because they are very, very critical for the stability of this country. Yeah. You, have, you have certainly answered the question I was asking, which is why I'm concerned, maybe given the connectivity issues, you didn't hear me uh, correctly in the question. I, I was, in fact asking that very question about there being a sincere pledge to honor the results of the polls and the possibility that Lesotho now is on the cusp 
of, uh, you know, of being on a path to stability. What would you say, Dr. Letsi, should be the first priority of the, you know, of the new leaders? Well, I, I, I think uh, maybe before I get to what, what I think about what should be the, the first priority, go back a little bit to the place that you talked about. Yes, we have seen in a number of incidences in the past where leaders pledged to honor the election results, and they did this time around, and we are expecting that they are going to honor them. But like I said, we are having shock results that might uh, cause some uh, problems within the parties because uh, these bigger parties have really beaten very, very hard. But now, coming to the priority, I think what has to be priority of the leaders uh, will be determined by an assessment of their voters. Mostly, uh, this party has been voted uh, by the youth because for the first time, the issue of economy was uh, a, a electoral issue. So I think the very, very first thing that they have to try to tackle is to try to create job opportunities. With job opportunities around, I think it will be easier for people to have patience for other things. Uh, but you, as they say, you know that uh, an empty stomach that does not have an ear. So if there are no visible uh, employment opportunities, people are still without income, the poverty remains as right as it is now, they will soon ex uh, experience a lot of problems. So I think the first priority has, be, has to be job creation. Some really interesting perspectives there. Uh, I look forward, uh, Dr. Lesia, to one day interviewing you in person or have our reporter interview you in person in Lesotho to share some of these, um, these insights that you're sharing. And very profound saying you quote there around, uh, you know, an, an empty stomach having no ear, that that has to be the initial priority is how people can activate their agency um, to get jobs and, and, and to have a life of dignity. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your analysis. Thank you. The National University of Lesotho Senior Lecturer, Dr. Klohang Letsie. And uh, that was uh, an update on uh, political developments uh, in uh, Lesotho and Southern Africa. Lesotho is a member of the Southern African Development Community, along with uh, 15 other nation states throughout the Southern Africa region, including Republic of South Africa, Republic of Zimbabwe, Republic of Namibia, Mozambique, Angola, Zambia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Comoros, the Madagascar, Seychelles, among others. And uh, this is the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. Today is Saturday, uh, October the 8th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for uh, this week. Ruler of my heart, driver of my soul, where can you be? I wait patiently, my heart cries out. Hey. 
voice of uh, Irma Thomas uh, from uh, New Orleans, ruler of my heart uh, from 1963. And right now we want to move into another segment uh, discussing the prospects for the decolonization of education in Africa. And before that, uh, I want to remind you, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Let's listen in. China Global Television Network. Millions of college graduates in Africa are jobless. Their degrees have turned out to be just worthless pieces of paper. Employers say they're half-baked and do not possess the necessary skill sets for the jobs on offer. And there is a background to all of this. Now, at Independence, many African countries inherited a largely colonial form of education designed by the colonizers to respond to the needs of the colonies. But a rapidly evolving labor market has exposed its shortcomings. The quest for change is now gathering momentum across the continent, with examples Kenya and Uganda taking the lead in East Africa. This week on Talk Africa, we explain what decolonizing the education system entails how African countries are going about it, and the expected outcomes of the undertaking. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, Kenya is overhauling its education system to empower learners to have more practical skills that will help them when they start working. It's adopting a competency-based curriculum tailored to tap into the individual strengths and talents of learners to boost their mastery of the skills required in the labor market. But as CGTN's Nick Mudimba now tells us, the Kenyan education experts are divided over the new curriculum's suitability. Let's take a listen. Kenya is rolling out its competency-based curriculum that aims to have a holistic learner who can fit well into the job market. At a private primary school in Nairobi, a CBC class is underway. The pupils are taken through lessons. It's a mix from making beads, learning mathematics, and even playing music. Teachers have the tough task of ensuring the new system is properly rolled out. It is a beautiful thing, only that if I were in a position, I would say, let the teacher facilitate, let the teacher be supported, especially in terms of making the materials, because it is overwhelming. The competency-based curriculum has made Kenyan parents to be closer to their children than ever before. This is due to the hands-on situation that are given by the teachers from school. For now, they're hoping that it will change the perception of so many learners compared to the 844, which is mainly writing notes, dictating, and of course, cramming for exams. Education experts, however, have some reservations about the competency-based curriculum. The introduction of CBC um, was, you know, fulfilling a national desire to change what was on offer in education because there was a mismatch, an apparent mismatch, which may be true or not true about what 844 was producing and what industry required. So in the process of changing, 
CBC was settled upon as a mode of instruction, but the problem came in because nobody explained to the nation why CBC, because there are so many other models. Why did we settle on this? The biggest question that has never been answered up to now is a design question. What is the philosophy of CBC? What is CBC founded on? Janet Mumbi is a career woman and a mother of three pupils who are all learning under the new curriculum. She spends eight hours at work every weekday. In the evening, she helps her children do their homework. They, the child does not miss out on anything. When we come to these subjects like the arts and the and, um, music, where the home science, they are not just doing a lot of uh, notes, it's also the practical part of it. So I think a child has, and you know once you do an activity, you don't forget. There is the learning, there is the cooking, there is the planting of things, which before would just learn types of plants and all that, but now they are actually doing it. And when you do it, when there is the application part, there is a chance that that child will never forget. And they relate with it. And I think that is something that CBC is trying to to make sure that the children understand, not just reading about it, but they actually practice it. For Mumbi, she hopes the new curriculum will continue sharpening her children's prowess so that in the future they feed into the demands of the ever-competitive changing world. Nick Mudimba, CGTN, Nairobi. Well, let's now bring in our panel of experts from Johannesburg, Edmund Terem Umar, PhD candidate at the University of Johannesburg in Nairobi. Joining us via Zoom, Peter Amunga, education activist, and Leandro Komakech, team leader at the Leandro Associate Limited, joining us from Kampala. Gentlemen, a warm welcome and thank you for being a part of this conversation. Peter, if I may start off with you, because I want to begin this conversation by understanding the current concept of the education system that exists in Africa. What are the characteristics of the education system that is colonial in nature on the continent? The colonial masters that colonized Africa, they gave us the language of instruction. So we use that language to teach our learners and they also gave us the mode, the pedagogy that we used to teach. So we are all African countries that were colonized still depend or are still dependent on their colonial masters for the education systems. And it becomes very hard to talk about decolonizing or coming out of it because we still depend on them up to this very moment. Most of the content that we get from our former colonial masters is very irrelevant. We teach some literature European literature. We teach history, Latin American history. We teach about European history. Most of it does not apply to our our situation, our climate. We teach even the four seasons, for example, in the in the in the European nations. Yet in Africa, we don't experience those four seasons. So you discover that the, as much as we borrow so much from those colonial masters, the the content that we receive from them is not applicable in many areas. Most times. We are teaching things that are like out of outer space and our learners actually are most times at loss when trying to follow what is being taught. Leandro, let me get your view here because Uganda is changing its curriculum. Which aspects of the education system derived from its colonial past is Uganda unhappy about, for instance? Coloniality in its uh, entire package was all about subjugation. And subjugation was about making sure that our minds were taken over by other people and therefore 
out of that is when we began to accept that it is good to have uh, an education system that is foreign and yet we think it is good for us. And so from that basis is, is when we, we went deep into the, into the poisoning of, of the African mind and in believing that anything indigenous, whether in knowledge or any context of culture and everything else, was completely useless. There are so many other components that still are invisible, but it still affects the future of our learners in, in Africa. And in Uganda in particular, when the education system was introduced, it was supposed to actually facilitate our clerical works uh, to, with the colonial masters. With a little bit of uh, technical, which was at a very low level. Right. Now, of course, through many processes, we have gone through commissions that were put in place at pre-independence, and then after independence, we then took on the process where we took too much of, uh, of the teaching that produced uh, white-collar uh, jobs as opposed to blue-collar. So at the end of the day, we find ourselves in a catch-22 where the number of those that have gone through these processes cannot fit what is legitimately required in the market. All right. And that is why Uganda, actually in 1989, I went through to change its uh, education system by launching the first paper that was called the, the Kajubi Report of 1989 that brought in place many changes in the education system. And uh, through those processes, we have begun to see that government has uh, embraced in all its entirety a competence-based process that builds the learner from the beginning to have a practical thinking and, and, uh, and knowledge that then can make that learner, at the end of all the processes or courses, right. somebody worthwhile to be valuable in the labor market. Right. I want to bring in Edmund here. Edmund, yeah. we know that most schools in Africa uh, are too focused on a European or Western way of doing things. I, I, I want to get your perspective here as a student. Should they adopt a more African or global perspective? What is your experience? Yes, uh, it is my contention that uh, the harm has already been done. But we must also realize that we live in a global community and globalization is taking shape in Africa. Right. And because globalization is taking shape in Africa, there is a transfer of values, transfer of, um, of educational values and so on. So it is my contention that as if we want to have a more pragmatic, um, decolonized educational system, then we should adopt a, a certain form of what I would want to call a global decolonization. And here the global decolonization that I want to think here is that um, everyone should take part in this decolonization process, both the West the, uh, and the East and let's say Sub-Saharan Africa and the Northern part of Africa. They should take part in this discourse because it is pointless for us to bring our indigenous knowledge system into the conversation when in the Western world they don't even understand what is that. Because so currently since there is this transfer of values, transfer of uh, knowledge system, um, it has always been in a, in a horizontal way, it has always been from top to bottom. So we must try to see how we can adopt 
a bottom-to-top approach and a top-to-bottom approach. Those two must go concomitantly. Let me get Peter's view here. Peter, do you agree on that, though, that uh, it, it, it beats logic, um, you know, to try and uh, export our education, indigenous education system, to a continent or to a region that doesn't understand who we are? African culture is very diverse. It's very different. We, we have, like in Kenya, for example, we have almost over... Of 40, 40 tribes. All of these tribes have their different cultures. We can't, uh, for example, talk about uh, one culture or one uh, w having a system that is fitting all those 40 uh, tribes. But what can bring us together is what we what we saw in the in the European Revolution, what they call the Industrial Revolution, the Cultural Revolution, the Agrarian Revolution. Africa needs to undergo a revolution that will change it to make sure that uh, the that brings them to be a united people to know what is good for them. For example, we have the Maasai culture, for example. How will you make the, the education system say uh, uh, just one culture in, in Kenya called the Maasai culture? Right. So what I'm trying to say is this. Yes, it is logic. And two, we are still dependent on those foreign masters to fund for us all the way to, you know, the, the, the methodologies to train our teachers. We are still dependent on the World Bank. We are still dependent on the IMF. Right. We are still dependent on European donors. So that we are able, they are the ones who dictate to us now what kind of methodology, what kind of training, what kind of labor market we need. And so they, are the, they still have a way to reach out to us, even if we try to to get independent or to go our own way. We are not able to do it because this will control the money, the pass. He who pays the piper plays the tune, gets the tune. Let me bring in uh, Lagos here. Uh, Richard Aydeyinka, founder of a CEO Data Home and Research and Communications, is joining us uh, from uh, Lagos. As independence, though, it did seem that the systems of education worked fairly well in responding uh, to, to the needs of the post-independence era. However, is it still relevant? What is your experience as an employer, Richard? Oh, well, uh, right now, the problem we are facing is how to transfer this knowledge from the classroom to the field, to the market so we can benefit from whatever skill has been transferred to our learners in the classroom. But the problem that cuts across that I have seen is that here, whatever we have learned in class, we are finding it difficult to translate them to practice. Whatever we have learned, we cannot use it to develop our society. Uh, we have had cases where our policymakers have argued that the mode of delivery in our classroom is not adequate, that we should use our indigenous language to teach our learners in the classroom. So it therefore suggests that the knowledge is inadequate, understanding is lost, with languages, you know, when you use English language, for instance, to train a child in Nigeria is battling with his or her indigenous language 
and at the same time learning English language. Right. Whereas those in China or in elsewhere, they don't have to do that. They use their language to train them from beginning so they understand it, they can see it. Now, in our own case, we are battling with language issue, and then the person that is transferring the knowledge is also using the same language. Sometimes, this, the understanding of the language through which the knowledge is delivered is not adequate, right. and meaning is lost in the process of transferring this knowledge to our learners. Leandro, let me get your perspective here because we are seeing African countries like Kenya and Uganda undertaking review of their curriculum structures. Why are these countries seeing a need to change their systems 60 years after independence? Have the systems, uh, you know, have Africa's education systems failed to evolve? The challenge here is while we evolve to get into a better space, we need to understand our philosophy of education, are we, producing, uh, are we producing just for the sake or we have an objective that is tailored to the market at present in Africa? That is what is very key in shaping our, our education and in ensuring that when we deliver the curricula that matters, then at the end of the day we see the youth of Africa becoming competent in the world market and i think that is very very important because we need a human resource constituency that can have uh, employability not only in africa but in the world stage and, and right. that is uh, the challenge we have to grapple with of course notwithstanding the issue of uh, coloniality decoloniality is, is quite an important area that we need to guard right. uh, well that while we do it we can pick some of the positive values that uh, we, we, we got along and then add on to our worldview, our African values that are imperatively important in the growth of the, the human potential in Africa. And I All think right. this is very key as we develop through, though we have taken long to do that. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there for the moment. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, we will look at whether the current education systems in Africa are meeting the demands of the job market and the changing global labor dynamics. Stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Now let's continue with our discussion. Still with us in Johannesburg, Edmund Terem Umar in Nairobi, joining us via Zoom, Peter Amunga, and in Kampala, Leandro Komekech. Peter, let me start off with you now. How would African countries, though, undertake the task of changing a curriculum? Is it a reality that can be achieved on the continent, given the fact that it has been the same curriculum that has existed in many countries uh, for about 60 years? Curriculum implementation depends on also political goodwill. It also depends on the peace prevailing in the country, the leadership of the country, the economy of the country. The competence-based curriculum that we are trying to introduce in most of our African countries is a very good curriculum. The problem we are having is that we are not able 
to carry out the proper implementation plan, the pilot stage, the research stage, and all these stages are not being followed. Many times we have got political leaders in our countries who some of them want to leave behind a legacy. And so they rush it up. Now, curriculum implementation does not need rushing. Right. It needs proper planning. And that is what we are lacking. Quality education is made up of three things. Quality teachers, they must first be trained properly and trained to deliver that curriculum. Quality tools, we must have the tools to deliver a curriculum, a quality education. And in most times in Africa, we don't have those tools. And number three, quality environment. Environment here, I mean the classrooms, the, the atmosphere, and everything that goes around the teaching learning process. Like in Kenya, where, where I am right now, the problem we are having with the curriculum implementation, the CBC, is that we, have, we rushed it. We tried to please some political leaders, and because of that, we lost it. We may have to start afresh so that we can get it properly. Because our technology and our skills are different from what people maybe in China, maybe in Japan, maybe in Finland want. Uh, if we could tailor to fit our specific needs All right. as Africa, all right. Edmund, let me get your thinking here in terms of the objective um, of the education system. Are we just, um, you know, as Leandro is putting it, are we just producing uh, students for the sake of it? Or do we actually have an objective today in the same vein as the colonialists had an objective with their education system? The, the objective here for this, their educational system is, uh, is to ensure that they feed Africans with with knowledge because Africans are unable to produce knowledge for themselves. So now we need to reorient ourselves about that. And how can we reorient ourselves about that? There are certain things, there are certain values that we can pick when, uh, when we go back to pre-colonial society. And one of some of the values, the educational values, is the ability of, um, of acquiring skills for ourselves. But currently with our educational system, it's just like, like, like the earlier speaker had said, um, I think at the beginning, it's just about coming to classroom, um, feeding yourself with this information that you can't even, you don't even understand the relevance of this information. So, and as a result of that, this also affects the, uh, the employment market because now you just have a group of people who just know how you can put X and Y right. to form Z, but they don't even know how to apply those concepts in, in, in the real world, and, and that is very problematic. So our educational objective has to be in pragmatic. You know, it, it, it's more theoretical than pragmatic. So everybody just has these theoretical concepts about things, but the application of these theories become problematic. So Leandro, let me get your thoughts here. Which areas, because you're undertaking a curriculum review, which areas of the education system do you think requires a decolonizing approach? Uh, the teaching of history has been one of the greatest challenges where we have emphasized uh, European teaching. But you find that the content of the history of Ugandan is uh, flooded with... Uh, uh, European explorers, the first man to, to the first white man to see Lake Victoria, the first white man to see Mount uh, Elgon, the first white man to see where, the first one to see the longest river. Now, is that one something that can be taught to an African young child? 
that, that is growing in the country that should understand what is within the country. So I think this is where we need to have a radical change in, in terms of uh, teaching our local history. Because I was amazed in the United States. They do not teach uh, any history of, of any other continent apart from Western Europe and America. And actually, when they ask you, they said, we, we only know about uh, the Suez Canal and, the, and Egypt. That is the right. history that uh, a student will competently tell you. But for us here, geography, we learn the entire world geography. We come to Uganda, but the, the, the geography of East Africa, you find it is very narrow. So these are areas of changes that we require to bring a young African intellectual that understands and has a world view of where he or she is standing from. All right. I want to get your final comment, and I'll start off with you, uh, Leandro. You know, the world being global, there are many things universal about education and education systems and possibly some best practices that uh, cut across the board. What should this, uh, that should be, what are those that can be retained even while considering changing the education system, because not all of it is bad, clearly, from this discussion. The world has moved. Africa has remained behind. There are many challenges we need to catch up with. So, so what is the Africa we want? What is it that we need to produce in terms of human resources that would fit the next century? And, and therefore, that now brings to us the challenges of, of reviewing these processes. And therefore, decolonization becomes the the fulcrum or the common de denominator in determining how uh, we dovetail all these other interests. So, so for me, while I agree well, my colleague talked about science, well, we, we, we need to decolonize science, but the teaching of science uh, in, uh, in our schools in Africa, I think, has been uh, very problematic. If you look at what is required, and that now goes back to individual governments in Africa. What are our priorities in terms of how the tools for processing these knowledges are concerned? I've seen in my primary school when I grew up, I started primary one. It was hard to learn because sometimes many kids were writing on the floor, you know, from the village schools. So what is the infrastructure that can facilitate this process? While we talk about the theory, I think the African governments have the greatest challenge in ensuring that our budgetary priorities must as well begin to shift. Because this is at the core of transforming the future of Africa. And it will require a very expensive exercise that would need an input in injecting more in our annual budgets in, across Africa. And therefore, it is an holistic approach we, we, we need to look at and very deliberate. Because when we say we, we would need to decolonize our education, and yet we think by reviewing and not understanding through our deliberate consciousness of what decolonizing means, then we shall get results wrong. So for me, I agree we have a long journey to walk, but we must also see from where my colleague in, uh, from South Africa stated, that actually the issue about coloniality was all about conquest, domination, and getting resources. But Africa is very rich. How do we use our internal African resources to build a capacity and momentum to energize the education sector that is Afro-based, but with a world understanding that we can deploy our human resources in the world market?
Because to date, if you need experts, they will always be with a lot of uh, uh, thinking around the African human resources. Uh, which university do you come from? Right. Now, all these are challenges we need to, to outgrow. And the fight will begin from us, and we take the fight to the rest of the world. Right. Peter, your uh, final thoughts? If we are talking about decolonizing our education system, and we want the competence, the competence, the skills, the question that should be on the mind of our curriculum implementers and all of us as people in Africa should be, which are these skills that are relevant? We don't want to compete, say, Japan in, in producing uh, vehicles. What competence do we need as Africans to keep us alive and to keep us relevant in this society? The pre-colonial education system before the colonists came taught us pottery, basketry, hunting, gathering. These skills were relevant to us. And we were using that for trading with the international trade. We were able to trade using our gold, our, our blacksmiths, and all these kind of people. Those are the competences that we now need to think about. Do we go ahead and improve on skills? For example, if it's a Maasai in mm -hmm. Kenya, must we train him to be a, a person who can, make, who can produce cars, assemble cars, or can we train him to be a good tourist guide, to be a good hunter, to be a good person who can guide in the in tourism industry? Maybe those are the competences we need to be talking about to inculcate in our system. And I tend to think that, uh, yes, it is time to improve our skills, to make our, our education more competent, but the question is, which competent skills do we need to make ourselves relevant in this century? Gentlemen, thank you very much for an interesting uh, conversation here. But that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our panel of experts in Johannesburg, Edmund Terem Umar, PhD candidate at the University of Johannesburg. In Nairobi via Zoom, Peter Amunga, education activist. And in Kampala, Leandro Komakech, a team leader at Leandro Associate uh, Limited. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and Twitter. And you can watch this and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. To so join us again next week for more Talk Africa. From me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, bye-bye. Welcome back, and uh, that was a segment on uh, decolonizing education on the African continent. We'll be back.
Detroit uh, Motown Sound, the Marvelettes, and I'll keep on holding on, written, uh, co-written by Ivory Joe Hunter, who made his transition just this last past week. And in later programs, we'll have a sharper focus on Ivory Joe Hunter and his work in the field of music and culture. Right now, we want to go to another education struggle, a historic struggle from 1951 in Virginia, uh, which preceded uh, the civil rights movement that erupted in Montgomery in 1955. This is from 1951. Let's listen in. In 1951, a 16-year-old girl led her fellow students in a walkout and strike to protest substandard conditions at her segregated high school in Farmville, Virginia. In his January 2010 inaugural speech, Virginia Governor Bob McDonald recalled the pivotal role of Barbara Johns in the historic student walkout. Barbara Johns was willing to risk everything for the simple opportunity of a good education. Surely, nearly 60 years later, we can work together to provide that opportunity for all Virginia children. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, the student strike that went all the way to the Supreme Court. On the grounds of the Virginia State Capitol, a crowd of people cheers the dedication of a new civil rights memorial, cast in bronze and featuring 18 figures arranged around a large granite block. One of the figures is of 16-year-old Barbara Johns. She didn't live to see this commemoration in July of 2008, but her grandchildren were there. Um, I'm Andrew Harrison. I'm from New Jersey. I'm the grandson of Barbara Johns. Uh, I just can't even believe it right now. I mean, my grandma is such uh, such an inspiration. I just, I just, uh, I wish I really got to meet her. My name is Alexis Harrison. It's an honor to be the granddaughter of Barbara Johns. It really inspires me knowing that anyone at any age could do anything that they put their mind to. The story of Barbara Johns begins 60 years ago in Robert Russell Moton High School in Farmville, Virginia. It's 1951, and the school is in wretched condition. There isn't a gymnasium, cafeteria, or teacher restrooms. There aren't even enough desks or blackboards. The overcrowding means many students have to take classes in tar paper shacks, and others have to learn inside an abandoned school bus. Enter Barbara Johns, the niece of Vernon Johns, a minister who'd long been active in the civil rights struggle. Fed up with poor conditions at the school, Barbara forges notes to teachers, instructing them to bring their classes to the auditorium for a special announcement. When they show up, she and fellow students take the stage, and Barbara rallies more than 450 students to walk out. Together, they march to the homes of school board members, who repeatedly refuse their petitions for a school that is equal to that of the white school in the county. Here's Barbara Johns talking about that walkout in a rare 1978 interview. We wanted so much here and had so little. And we had uh, 
talents and abilities here that weren't really being realized. And I thought that was a tragic scene. And that's uh, basically what uh, motivated me to want to see some change take place here. Today, Moton High School isn't a school. It's the Robert Russell Moton Museum, and it serves as a center for the study of civil rights. Lacey Ward, Jr. is museum director, and he recently sat down with two people who participated in the 1951 walkout, Reverend Samuel Williams and Joyce Cabra Speaks. Many people who visit Virginia today are going to come to know Barbara Johns because of a memorial on the Capitol grounds in Richmond, Virginia. But I think what our listeners today want to know is, who was Barbara Johns and, and who was Barbara Johns on April 23, 1951? Who, who'd like to talk a little bit about that? Well, I feel that Barbara Johns was a brilliant person. She was a very attractive person. And Barbara took a lot of walks, did a lot of praying for answers to what she felt was a problem. What did Barbara do? And, and tell me, were you surprised by it? I was very surprised by it. We were shocked because that day when we were called to the auditorium for assembly, we thought that it was just the principal calling us in. But when we got into the auditorium, all of us, and the curtain opened, there was Barbara Johns along with the others, uh, Carrie Stokes, uh, John Stokes, and others that were on the committee. And Reverend Williams, you were there that day, too. Yes, I was there. And there was a lot of cheering. There was a lot of listening. There was some booing and, and so forth. And I know that we had made comparisons and contrasts with the high school and our school, inadequate facilities that we had. They had what we would regard now as state-of-the-art equipment. So, we, you know, we were not informed of all of this that were go- things that were going on transpiring in the auditorium at that time. And I want to bring into the conversation also what I feel really triggered Barbara to push the strike forward. Um, her best friend was killed in the bus accident that took the lives of five children coming from school because they were in the bus that they were riding on was a secondhand bus. Tell us a little bit more about that for, for those who don't know. Okay, the bus accident happened when they were leaving school, taking the children home. That was at Elam Crossing. And it was five kids that belonged to the same family that were killed. But then also, Barbara was taking care of her siblings because her mother was working away and her father was busy with the farm and, and she had to take care of her siblings. And this day she was getting ready for school. She sent her sister and brother down because she forgot her lunch. She went back to get get her lunch. And when she came back, the bus had passed and she was left on the side of the road to try to get a ride to school. An hour later, she was still standing on the side of the road and the white bus passed by that was half empty. And it didn't stop because they could not pick her up and take her to school. And that put it really into motion Mm -hmm. that this bus is half empty and I'm standing on the side of the road. I have to do something about it. And that night she said she turned and she prayed and she asked God to put something into her mind so that she could really do something about this frustration. And that's when she went to the school the next day, and she got the committee together, which was John Watts and Carrie Stokes and John Stokes. And Reverend Williams, I want to ask you one thing. Uh, 
Most students who listen to this today are going to think, well, what would my parents have thought? What did the parents make of all of this? There was a lot of ambivalence among the parents. For instance, we went from one extreme to the other. Go back to school. Uh, you may not have the state-of-the-art equipment as to what white people have or in the white high school, but I didn't have that when I attended school. Go back. Then there were others who said, no, no, you stand your ground. Protest what white schools had and we did not have. For instance, they had a modern science lab. We did not. We had just one microscope for, what, 400 and some students. They had first aid room, teacher's lounge. We didn't have any of that. Our coach would get together with the white coach to let us go over and practice the night before the game so that we could get accustomed to playing at night. We didn't have lights on our field. They did. And these are just some things that we use to point. And people can show you something you can just show above abstract. You can show it. Yeah. yeah. And what, what about your parents? What, what was the reaction? Well, the day of the strike when I went home, I was more fearful of what my grandparents were going to say than I was on any other repercussions at the time. But when I got home, my grandmother, who was a teacher also, she said she did not think it was right. My grandfather thought that it was a good idea because he had Uh been going back and forth down to, you know, the Mm -hmm. superintendent and everything. Eventually, she was convinced to come on the other side. The parents had been fighting for these for a better school for a long time and they didn't get it so the children just got ahead of them and were able to put it into motion a lot of the parents that had children they were able to have them work on the farm for the two weeks that they were on strike so okay. that played a role <laughs> well, you, those, you got to do some farm work for two weeks no i had to do farm work all the time oh, okay. <laughs> After school on the weekends and whatever. (laughs) There was this event. Students decided to go on strike. You're out of school for two weeks. Uh, A month later, lawsuits filed. And I guess everybody by then is back in school. Did things go back to normal? Or what was it like the rest of that school year? I, I think they pretty well went back to normal. At the time, I was like 12 years old. But we went back to school. Classes were as they were before we went on strike. But how about Barbara Johns in the rest of that school year? Well, Barbara Johns was sent to, I'm trying to remember that, but she was sent to live with her uncle, Vernon Johns, in Montgomery, Alabama, because of the threats on her life. But the thing is that anything that you do, you have to make a sacrifice. There's a sacrifice for everything that you can do that you achieve something from. Many students in school today don't even know that there was an event of some magnitude. Why why is it people don't know about Prince Edward County, Virginia, or don't know about Barbara Johns and the student strike? Uh, There was only a certain amount of information that the white controlling power wanted to get out of Prince Edward. And it's a gentleman's like agreement in Virginia. People did not really want wanted to be known. So much has been hidden on purpose and much has been hidden from school, from students, even mm-hmm. at the college level, along with universities as there. Mm-hmm. Keeping black history away from black people, keeping black history away from white people mainly and everybody else, other racial and ethnic groups, because it is so shameful. There at the state capitol, there's a quote attributed to Barbara Johns later in her life. It seemed like reaching for the moon. 
Sixty uh, years after you all as students took this action, the classrooms you studied in will become exhibit space. And, of course, uh, Barbara Johns won't be here with us to to see that. Explain to her what you're seeing today. I would tell Barbara that she did reach the moon in her time and her season. And what she did will show a young person, a young man, a young woman, that they can change government. They can make a difference in this world and in this nation. All they have to do is stand for what they feel should be changed. And we just wish that she could have been to see what change she made in Prince Edward County in America and for so many citizens. Thank you so much. Thank you both. You're welcome. Thank you for allowing us the opportunity. Sure. That was Lacey Ward, Jr., director of the Moton Museum, speaking with Reverend Samuel Williams and Joyce Cabra Speaks, who both participated in the 1951 student walkout. The student strike in Farmville, Virginia, occurred four years before the actions of Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott, six years before the Little Rock Nine crisis, and nine years before the sit-ins throughout the South. Larissa Smith-Ferguson is a professor of history and government at Longwood University in Farmville. Standing in the halls of the former Moton High School, she explains why the walkout in Prince Edward County doesn't hold a more prominent place in the history of the civil rights struggle. I think there's really two reasons for that. One is the timing of the walkout itself. It occurred in 1951, and this is before really most Americans had televisions uh, and certainly it was a secret that the boycott would happen, and so there's no time for media to get here in the first place. But I think really many of our memories of the civil rights movement and our public memory of the civil rights movement is shaped by what we see on television. And really much of the Moton story, the Prince Edward story, happened in classrooms and happened before the advent of television. The second reason why the Prince Edward story has been overlooked is because of the place of Virginia in civil rights history and that much of the Virginia story has been left out of this grand narrative, as one scholar calls it, where it's centered around Martin Luther King Jr. and the activities of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the deep south states of Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi. But I think that the, that the, in many ways, the 1951 student walkout here is a sort of hinge point uh, between earlier civil rights struggles that often resulted from a moment of direct action. When Irene Morgan in 1946 refused to give up her seat on a bus in Gloucester County, Virginia, um, that resulted in a court decision, a Supreme Court decision in 1946 that banned segregation in interstate transportation, as yet it would take the 1960s freedom rides to really make that um, 
elimination of segregation permanent. And so in this way, sort of, I think what the students did also helped to launch a chain in the event of events that would eventually result in the desegregation of public education in America. Larissa Smith-Ferguson is a professor of history and government at Longwood University. May I have your attention, please? Fellow students, many of you know me. I am Barbara Johns. For too long, we have quietly accepted the hand-me-downs that end up in this school. I say no longer. That's a scene from Strike, a film about Barbara Johns. It was shot on location at Moton High School. Tim Reed, a well-known actor and founder of New Millennium Studios, directed the film. And 17-year-old actor Courtney Jameson plays Barbara Johns. When I first saw Courtney, she had a certain look and a certain power that just immediately struck me. Uh, Someone who was very confident and uh, very self-assured. So I wanted her to understand what the country was like then. And the more I, 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 you know, we discussed that, the more I wanted her to understand what courage it took for this young woman and how you could find within yourself that essence of character, and she was able to do it. I just tried to get to know the story, and I will admit I went to Wikipedia. A lot of students my age go there to just, you know, read up on information. So there are some who tell us that we should be content with what we have, that someday in the future things will be better. When will that day happen? I think it's mostly just about students becoming united. A lot of teens need to watch this because it's so powerful, and it really inspired me to want to go out and become a mentor and become um, somebody who's making a difference in my community, even though I'm young. Our parents tell us to be good students. In church, we are told to read the Bible. Well, the Bible says that a little child will lead. There's a sense within every person who sees this that there's a way to achieve change and a way to achieve a goal that we've thrown away. Uh, We're more in the aggressive, the more we think we can shout our way to freedom. We think we can shout our way to change. We think we can embarrass people to be who we want them to be. We think that, no, no, Uh, we just went through and going through political system now where everybody said they wanted change. And as soon as change came, everybody was resistant to change. (laughs) It's the most ridiculous thing in the history of politics. (laughs) We all want hope. Well, here's hope. Oh, we don't want that hope. We want our kind of hope. If you mean change like we got to change something, no, we want change without change. (laughs) Well, these young people, when they said they wanted change, they actually meant it, and they were willing to sacrifice whatever it took. There are repercussions to change, and I don't think today we understand that. Now, hopefully these young people, when they come out of there and know that this school still exists as a symbol to change and what can be accomplished through uh, this kind of change, that they'll have a, a, a better view as opposed to what they're getting from the politicians and the pundits today. Tim Reed is an actor and founder of New Millennium Studios and director of the film Strike, in which Courtney Jameson plays Barbara Johns. And I have been one of your public servants who has fought throughout that time to prevent the mixing of the races in the public schools. And up to this moment, there is no mixing of the races in the public schools of Virginia. And there is no turmoil, no confusion, no chaos as a result of that.
That was Virginia Governor Lindsay Allman in 1959, attacking integration and vowing to maintain segregated schools. During the strike, Barbara Johns and fellow students sought legal counsel from the NAACP, which agreed to assist as long as the suit would be for integrated schools and not just equal schools. Next, the courts upheld segregation in Prince Edward County. The NAACP then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and this case, along with four others, became part of Brown v. Board of Education that was the beginning of the end of segregated education in America. In 1954, the Supreme Court ruled that separate but equal is unconstitutional. In states where segregation had existed since Reconstruction, the decision was met with hostility. These states enacted policies of massive resistance, and some school districts suspended public education completely. While most white children entered private schools, many black children went uneducated. Mildred Robinson is a professor of law at the University of Virginia and co-author of Law Touched Our Hearts, A Generation Remembers Brown v. Board of Education. Moton Museum Director Lacey Ward spoke with Mildred Robinson. Mildred, what's the book about? This book grew out of a relationship between a colleague of mine at UVA and myself that started in 1984 when I came to Charlottesville as a visitor at the law school. Richard is a Southerner, as am I. He was born in Virginia. I was born in South Carolina, and we immediately hit on the Brown experience as a common denominator. Since there were 17 million school children in segregated schools in 1954, it was pretty hard to think of a way to get our arms around the sample, but we finally decided that we would turn to our colleagues in the legal academy to ask if any had been affected by Brown, and if so, to tell us just a little bit about that experience. It's not as attorneys, but as children. Wow, wonderful. I don't mean to pry. You, you mentioned the dates of birth for people who would be in the survey. Were you and Richard part of that group? Oh, yes, absolutely. We were both born in 1944, so that makes us 60-plus, a very vital 60-plus. <laughs> I just, just wanted to know if you were within the range. And, oh, yeah. and you mentioned uh, you were born in South Carolina. That is correct. Richard born in Virginia. And I guess even in Virginia, it played out in different ways. Well, which one would you like to start with first, uh, sharing with our listeners? I think it's kind of interesting to get a little bit of background. We've got one writer who was in Fairfax, was in high school. And he writes and about the, his name is Earl Dudley. He was my colleague here at UVA. He is now retired. But he was in the ninth grade when Brown was decided. And he was in Fairfax County. And he describes it then as being very rural and very southern. He describes it as being rigidly segregated, little or no residential segregation. White folks and black folks, and again I quote from the essay, lived right next to each other, for the most part quite amicably, but everything else was segregated, not just the schools, but the restaurants, the lunch counters, the theaters, and for the most part, even the stores. As far as I ever discovered, I was the only student at Herndon High whose parents told him that the Supreme Court got it right. This was itself quietly remarkable, for both my parents had been born and raised in poor white families in Tidewater, Virginia. Indeed, I believe on the basis of anecdotal evidence that, at least before World War II, my father shared all the typical prejudices of his time and class. Three years in a Japanese internment camp during the war changed all that. He describes a debate that took place in his high school, which was organized by Mrs. Alger, who was his civics teacher, I believe. 
she decided to seize the moment after the Brown case was decided to do a little educating. When she asked for volunteers for the debate, there were many for the pro-segregation side, but initially I was the only one who stepped forward to support the decision. Finally, a very pretty and lively girl with an innate sense of fairness and the marvelous name of Dixie Lou Simpson volunteered to join me in defending the court. Dixie's parents, who had just moved to Northern Virginia from Alabama, certainly had not told her the Supreme Court got it right, and I'm quite sure Dixie didn't think so either. But she and I worked diligently to prepare our arguments. After the debate was over, Mrs. Alger asked for a vote of who had won, and Dixie and I garnered a solid majority. I don't mean... Welcome back. And that was a uh, audio documentary on the work of Barbara Johns in the 1951 uh, strike in Farmville, Virginia, and Prince Edwards County. And that's going to conclude uh, our program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for today, uh, Saturday, uh, October 8th, uh, 2022. And we've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our site at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with the music of Clifford Brown and Max Roach uh, live. This is Abayome Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. Presenting the outstanding exponents of the new jazz, led by Max Roach at the drums. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's my pleasure to introduce to you, at this time, George Bledsoe, our bass violinist. Our pianist, Carl Perkins. Teddy Edwards, our tennis saxophonist. And the great Clifford Brown on trumpet. First, all God's children got rhythm.
Thank you. Now it's our pleasure to present Clifford Brown playing for you tenderly.
A Teddy Edwards original, Sunset Eyes. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.